thought it'd be very appropriate in our series on the book of Revelation if we'd go back to uh, chapter 1, some principles there and verses that we just sort of glazed over briefly as we covered chapter 1 a number of weeks ago. And I want us this morning to concentrate in more in depth on verses 12 and following. The risen, reigning, and returning Lord. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Let's actually back up to verse 9 and begin reading there. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Father we're so grateful for the wonderful promises and truths that we celebrate at Easter. That we serve a risen Savior. He's not in the tomb. He's not on the cross. He's risen from the dead and the Bible says He ascended to the right hand of the Father and there He's our advocate. And He's making intercession for us before the heavenly father and therefore we can cast all our care upon him for he cares for us and Lord we know that the Bible says you're preparing a place for us and one of these days you're coming for your bride and in that day we shall be with you forevermore in a place where you tell us that you're making all things new There'll be no more sickness or death or suffering or crying or pain. And we will forever be in your presence. But God, we are so grateful that until then we have the promise that we are never alone. You are with us today because you live. If there's even one here today that needs that message in their heart because they feel so lonely. They're going through trials and tribulations and they just don't see your hand at work. 
God, I pray that they would come to understand this day about your great love for them. That your desire is to live your life in and through them and they can know you and have peace with you and be reconciled to God. I pray that will be their experience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to listen to how Anne Graham Lotz, in her book, A Vision of His Glory, how she introduces the first chapter of the book of Revelation. She says, the New York City Marathon is considered the ultimate race, with runners coming from all over the world to compete in it. While much prestige is given to the winner of the race, much respect is also given to those who simply qualify to participate and then actually finish the race. The course covers a distance of 26 miles and the record finish is just over 2 hours and 5 minutes, the new record being set by a Kenyan in 2011. In 1986, Bob Weiland entered the New York City Marathon along with 50,000 other runners. He and 19,800 of the other runners finished. But while the average runner finished in approximately four hours, Bob Weiland finished in four days, 17 hours, and seven minutes. What in the world took him so long? Bob Weiland has no legs. He ran the race by sitting on the ground and swinging himself forward step by step with his arms. But rather than be depressed, Bob Weiland overcame the greatness of his problems by keeping his eyes not on each immediate painful step, but on the big picture of finishing the race. He focused on his goal. Folks, this Easter Sunday, rather than focusing on our problems or focusing in on the problems of our nation, we need to focus in on the Savior. He's risen, He reigns, and one of these days, perhaps even soon, He's coming again for His bride. Amen. And we need to celebrate that. Now the early church used to say of Easter, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, it's Sunday, it's Easter Sunday, it's not Friday anymore, Jesus is not on the cross it's not Saturday, he's not lying in the tomb, it's Sunday, he's risen. Now listen to what John the Apostle learned about the life of Jesus. Jesus' words to John were a great encouragement. You see, John was exiled on a lonely island simply for being a believer. The world will face untold trouble one day, but Jesus wanted John to see that because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And that's something you and I desperately need to understand today. Because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, it makes all the difference in the world as to our hope 
both for today and tomorrow. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the peculiarity of his life. Look with me at verses 12 to 16 because in those verses John is giving a ninefold description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this description of the Lord Jesus Christ we see that there is nobody else quite like him. In fact, he is the only begotten from the Father. He is the only begotten Son of God. And it's very interesting the description that we see here of the risen Christ in Revelation. You see, in the Gospels we see Jesus rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to be that suffering servant who would go to the cross and die for your sins and my sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But the vision of the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation is much different than in the Gospels. In the book of Revelation Jesus is not rejected but he's glorified. And John sees him in all of his glory and John comes to understand that one of these days Jesus is coming back victorious for his bride. Now listen to these descriptions that he's talking about here. Because each one describes that Christ is not dead. He's alive and he's working in his world today. He's not somebody who is standing back and just simply allowing things to spin out of control in the world. John saw Jesus standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Now at the end of chapter 1, the lampstands are defined for us as being the churches. And Jesus is in the midst of his church. Now folks, the significance of that is that we do not worship a well-meaning martyr or a dead heroic religious leader. He's alive and the living Christ indwells believers and he's in the midst of his church. I want you to understand that this Easter. We're not here celebrating some figure from the past who is in a grave. Easter services are not annual memorial services that pay homage to somebody who is now dead and gone as though we were celebrating something like President's Day or some other such holiday. Easter services are celebration services that proclaim that He's risen and He's with us. Jesus Christ is alive and He's in the midst of His church. Now that ought to make all the difference in the world for each of us. Because Jesus said to his disciples just before he died, he said, before he died on the cross, he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. He said, after I'm crucified, I'm going to rise from the dead and I will ascend to the Father and I will ask the Father to give another like me who will be with you to the end of the age and he will be your comforter and he will be your teacher and he will be your helper and you will know that you are never alone. And that's the reality of what John sees here. 
He sees Jesus in the midst of his church. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 13. He describes him as one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that was the garment of the high priest in the Old Testament. But the Bible proclaims for us that now we have a new high priest, the Lord Jesus. We don't have to go to a human priest who then in turn takes our concerns to God. We can go directly into the presence of God ourselves because of Jesus Christ. It is through him that we have peace with God. It is through him that we have the justification of our sins. And it is through him that we are reconciled to God. And as Paul says in Romans 5, 2, through him and him alone, we have access into his presence. He is our high priest. And John sees that and and he learns here that Christ exercises a comforting presence. In Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, the writer says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You hear what the Bible is telling us there? The Bible is telling us that because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, because of the incarnation, because the Son of God dwelt among us in in flesh, fully divine and yet fully human, He understands what it's like to walk in our shoes and to go through our trials and tribulations. He experienced all of that without sin. And the Bible says because of that, now that he is at the right hand of the throne of God and we come to him in prayer, he understands what it's like to be a man and so he intercedes for us before the Father knowing our weaknesses. It is a comforting presence that he has for us before the Father. The Bible says he is our advocate there. He is our advocate. He represents us there before the Father. Now folks, the reality of his life is that as he indwells his churches, he's able to move sympathetically in our midst, caring for and protecting us and interceding for us. We need to understand what Paul was getting at in Romans 8 verses 31 and following. He said, if Christ be for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is nobody can. The one who came to die for our sins today is living and he is before the Father. He's representing us as our advocate and he is praying for us. A comforting presence. But also John sees him exercising a purifying presence. He describes him here as having hair as white, like wool, like snow. 
And the image there is that Christ possesses all wisdom and knowledge. He sees everything. His eyes are blazing with fire. He sees everything. There there is nothing that is hidden from his sight. And he knows everything about us. He's the all-wise God. He can direct your life and my life into the paths of righteousness. He knows what he's doing. He knows all things. Have you ever desired to have somebody perfectly direct your life? Well, he can do that. He knows all about you. He knows everything about all things. He's fully capable of handling the situations that trouble us. He's not up in the heavens pacing back and forth wondering what he's going to do about all the mess that's in the world today. He makes no mistakes. He never has to second guess himself. As somebody has written, his hindsight is never better than his foresight. He does not have to practice things until he gets them right. Now the white hair speaks not only of his wisdom but also of his purity. He's absolutely pure in all of his motives, in all of his methods, in all of his manner. With his eyes like a flame of fire, he sees with a penetrating glance everything about his church. Hebrews 4 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He exercises a purifying presence. But thirdly, John sees that he exercises a powerful presence. His feet are mentioned here. The feet of a king came to symbolize his authority. You see, kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones with their subjects beneath them at their feet. Now here's a clear indication in the scripture that we're to put ourselves under his authority. And then John sees here that his voice was like the sound of many waters. Folks, people may not want to listen to Christ now, but he will be heard. People have described for me standing at the base of a waterfall, kind of like Niagara Falls. And they say as you're standing there at the base of Niagara Falls, all that you can hear is the sound of the mighty rushing waters. Those waters, the sound of those waters drown out all sounds around them. And those waters are almost deafening that they're so loud. And that is how Christ's voice is. There are voices in our culture today that want to try to push him aside and silence his voice. You know, in society today, we don't want the Ten Commandments posted anywhere in public. We don't want manger scenes out in the public square. We don't want anything to do with God's Word as a society, it seems. Society is becoming more and more like that. People think they can silence the voice of God. But guess what? His voice can't be silenced. He has the final word as Francis Schaeffer used to say. Despite our best efforts to gag God. He is still there and he is not silent. He holds in his hand the seven stars of the churches. The messengers of the churches. The idea there is of complete control. 
Jesus said to Simon Peter in Matthew 16, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He alone has that kind of power. His is a powerful presence. And the Bible says before him one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. John also sees that out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Now in the Bible, this is an image of the Word of Christ, the Word of God. And notice that it's not a single-edged sword, it's a double-edged sword. Now the significance of that is that God's Word cuts both ways. God's Word can cut across my life in judgment warning me if I'm not right with the Lord or God's word can cut across my life in blessing assuring me of great promises from the word of God his word is like a double edged sword and John sees that as well and so in Christ's glorified risen state he presents himself to us as the one who protects us the one who counsels us and comforts us and disciplines us who knows all things and he will not be ignored. He's very much alive and he's in our presence today. And Folks, the reality of that ought to say to each of us that there is nothing we can go through in life if, if you are God's child, there is no experience you go through in life. There is no valley that you walk through in life where you're alone. God is there with you always. You remember what David said in the 23rd Psalm? He said, with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he went on to describe how God provides for him physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And God gives him that eternal hope of heaven one day. God provides for all of our needs. That is the promise that we have as believers. It's something that God has done in our behalf. It's not something we earn, but it's something that He has done for us because the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And when He was buried, He was raised again. And He's there at the Father because of everything He's done in behalf of believers. We can have these blessed assurances. The peculiarity of His life. There's nobody else like him. Oh, there's other spiritual teachers on the scene. There have been men and women come along through the ages and they have proclaimed themselves as somehow or another being the one through whom men come to know God. But you know what? They've died and been laid in a grave and we've forgotten about most of them. But Christ came and was buried but raised again and he lives today. And I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know this one whose life was different than any other life in all of human history? You see, the good news of the gospel is that we can know God through him. He's the Prince of Peace. 
And through Him, we can know God and we can be put right with God. Do you know Him today? Well, I not only want you to see the peculiarity of his life, but secondly, the imperishability of his life. Pick up reading with me in verse 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John introduces us here to Jesus Christ as the living creator. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Now folks, that was a title used of God in the Old Testament. Usually that title was used of God to contrast him with the idols of pagan nations. Now let's think about those idols of pagan nations a minute. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet pokes fun at those idols. He says a man goes out into the woods and he cuts down a tree and he takes some of the wood from that tree and he builds himself a house. Then he takes other portions of that wood and he starts a fire and he warms himself and then he takes still other portions of that wood and he cooks his food. And then he takes another portion of that wood down to the silversmith who fashions an image over it and that same man who's done all these other things with that wood now bows down to that wood and says, You're my God. How foolish. And Isaiah points out how those idols are nothing but dead and dumb idols. They don't have a voice. They can't speak. They don't have eyes. They can't see. They don't have ears. They can't hear. But in contrast to that, Christ is the first and the last and the living one. God is eternal. He's uncaused. He's He's the self-existent one. In John 5, 26, Jesus said to his Jewish opponents, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. His life was never derived from some other source, but was always self-existent. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is from everlasting to everlasting. All material, physical, and spiritual substance has come into being as a result of His creative power. John 1, 2 and 3 says, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You see what the scripture is saying? He lives. He always has. And he always will. And nothing can change that. The imperishability of his life. And why is that important? Because there is nothing more important than Him. Nothing created Him and He's not subject to any other authority or power. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority in the universe and He alone is to be the supreme authority in your life and in my life. 
It doesn't matter what your friends think of you. What matters is what does Christ think of you. Again, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now furthermore, as our Redeemer, notice when John says here he died. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He died on the cross, but on the third day he was raised to life again. He died on the cross. He he identified with our hurts and our temptations in life. He identified with all of our weaknesses. He became a man so he could go to the cross and die in your place and in my place. the, The perfect sin sacrifice, but the grave was not the end. You see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Christ was without sin. And so that means the grave had no right to him. The grave had no power over Christ. And so he could not and would not remain dead. He was raised. In Romans 1.4 the Bible says that he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicated everything about his life. Everything he said. Everything he did. The resurrection vindicated that. And it showed that the father was perfectly satisfied with the offering of his son. God's just anger against sin was dealt with fully at the cross. Folks, you and I do not have to try to work off our sin to God. That would be impossible. We can't do that. We don't place our faith or trust in our work, but in His work on the cross. His work on the cross was perfect, and the Bible says the Father saw that perfect uh, sacrifice and was satisfied. Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. That sacrifice never has to be offered again. And so all you and I have to do is repent of our sin and trust Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Yes, he died, but again, dying without sin, he could not stay dead. And that's why the Bible also says, for those who are in Christ, you will not stay in the grave either. You see in the Bible that the New Testament points out that there is this union between Christ and the believer. Christ and me, me and Christ. My life joined with Christ. And the Bible says that those who have been buried with Christ will also be what? Raised up with Christ. Amen? There is that union. That union between the child of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible points out that because He lives, you and I also shall live. That is a promise that we have from God. And this is a battle that doesn't have to be fought over and over again. Paul said in Romans 6, 9, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. 
And so Jesus Christ as the eternal God-man lives forever at the Father's right hand and he's our advocate there, he's our defense attorney, he's our sympathetic high priest and he is interceding for us. And the Bible goes on to say he's preparing a place for us. The imperishability of his life. He's able to do all of that because he lives. Jesus is the ever living one. Again, why does this matter? Because he says, I give unto them eternal life. If Jesus Christ were not the ever living one, if he couldn't have even raised, if he couldn't have been raised himself, then he would have no ability to offer you and I eternal life. Thirdly, I want you to see the authority of his life. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus said, uh, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Folks, keys are a symbol of his authority and supremacy. Only Jesus Christ has supremacy over the power of human death and destiny. He has the authority to decide who lives and who dies and where somebody will spend eternity. That's an authority that belongs to Christ. I think of that parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a story about at the end of time, all the nations being gathered before him, and and he said, I'll put my sheep on my right and the goats on the left, and I'll say to the sheep, come, enter in, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What does he give his sheep? He gives his sheep eternal life. And then the goats on his left, He said, depart from me. I never knew you. The point is, he's the one who has that authority. He holds the keys of death and of Hades. The Bible says that Christ knows those who are His. He knows those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And one of these days the book of life is going to be opened and the names are going to be searched and if your name is there, guess what? He gives unto you eternal life. That's the promise you have. The moment you repent of your sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is like Jesus Christ says, Father, this one is mine and I give unto them eternal life and nothing shall ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now that's authority, isn't it? As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, It's like Paul comes up with this laundry list of all of these potential enemies to the child of God. 
He mentions sickness and death and angels and demons and, and the grave. And he mentions all of these things. And he says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that, that in all of these things, God, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On his authority, he gives unto his children eternal life. Nothing in this world can take you away from his loving care. That does not mean for an instant that you and I as believers won't go through trial and tribulation. We'll go through many dark days in our life. We know that. We know how all the saints in the Bible went through very difficult things. But guess what? God was with them through everything they experienced. God was the one who was ultimately in control of their destiny. Amen? That's His authority as the living Lord. There is no power greater than than him and for the one who is in Christ and Christ is in him there is ultimate victory the Bible says that even should the worst happen to us death absent from the body present with the Lord that's the blessed assurance that we have and so we don't have to live in fear the message here to John was the same message those ladies on that first Easter Sunday when they went to the tomb, that message that they were given was fear not. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just as he told you. We don't have to live in fear because we are under his loving authority and his care. That means we don't even have to worry about our loved ones who have gone on before us. As 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're with him now and will be with him someday. Christ is supreme. And so the challenge is that we would believe upon Him, that we would rest all of our life, all of our cares upon Him, and that we would live for Him. People today will reject Christ. Some will accept Him. The one thing no one will be able to do always though is ignore him he won't be ignored outside Monrovia Liberia is a little village named Harbell built on the site of a former firestone rubber plantation in the village a small church and school have been established to serve the displaced persons who live there the pastor of the church is named Gabriel and the headmaster of the church-run school is named Emmanuel. The school serves 600 children and it has no books, 
no pencils, no paper, and no blackboards. When the pastor was asked if he was discouraged, he looked amazed and said, Brothers, we're Christians. At times it may appear that we are helpless, but we are never hopeless. At times it may appear that you and I are helpless, but we are never hopeless because He lives. And that makes all the difference in the world. John was alone on that Isle of Patmos, exiled because of his faith in Christ. Working there in the mines on that island. Hard slave labor. Persecuted. Oppressed. And I'm sure he felt very alone and helpless. But on that Lord's day, the risen Lord appeared to him to assure him that he was never alone. And the situation was never hopeless. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us today. Never hopeless. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? I want you to understand today that we can rest easy because he's not dead. He's risen. Come to Christ today. He can transform your life and give you hope. Give Him your life. See what a living Lord can do with your life. He can give you a whole new life. Again, that doesn't mean that He's going to erase all of your problems, but He's going to give you a new strength to go through those problems with. But you've got to come to Him. Could it be today that His Holy Spirit has been at work on your heart convicting you of your need of a Savior? Convicting you of your sin and the impossibility of saving yourself? And you realize today that you need a Savior? Come to Christ. What a wonderful day to give your heart and life to Christ. On Easter Sunday when we celebrate the fact that He's not in the tomb. He lives and He's at the right hand of the Father. Give Him your life on a day like this. And let Him live His life through you. I want you to understand also that you're never alone. Lean upon Christ to give you a living hope, whatever you're facing. And I want you to be assured that Jesus Christ is preparing a place for you. Now the Bible says of this world that he created this world in six days. Well folks, he's been preparing our eternal home for 2,000 years. We can travel around on this earth and see beautiful sights. If this earth that he created in six days is so beautiful, 
What do you think heaven's going to be like that he's been working on for 2,000 years? Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Father, we thank you that in the Gospels we, we celebrate the life of your Son. The peculiarity of his life. There's no one else like him. The imperishability of his life. He's always lived. Never been a time that he was not. And he lives eternally. And the authority of his life. He's able to give unto us eternal life. And to see to it that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Father, we thank you that for our greatest need, you didn't simply give us another law. You didn't just give us another teacher or philosopher. You gave us a Savior. You gave your Son. And I pray that if there's even one here today who does not know your Son, the Lord Jesus, that you would move upon their hearts, save them today. And for believers who have become so weighed down with the burdens of life, they just feel like they're at the end of their rope. Lord, help them to see today that they can cast all their care upon you. You're alive. And though there are things in life too big for us to handle on our own, there's nothing too big for you to handle. The open tomb ought to prove that to us. So Lord, help that believer today who's weighed down by life to roll all of their burdens onto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. And you might be that one here today without a relationship with Christ. I dare say it's a certainty in a crowd this size that there are probably a number of people here this morning who've never been born again. Maybe you've joined a church, filled out a commitment card, but the living Lord has never converted your heart. Ask God to do that in your heart today. If you know you've been born again, but you do have weights and burdens in your life, and you do feel like you're at the end of your rope, I want you to understand because He lives, He's more than able to handle anything that you and I could ever go through. Just entrust that care over to Him. He loves you. And he proved that once and for all at Calvary's cross. Amen.